Like the dead-seeming, cold rocks, I have memories within that came out of the material that went to make me. Time and place have had their say, so you will have to know something about the time and place where I came from in order that you may interpret the incidents and directions of my life. It's tempting just to read Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, aloud to you here now in its entirety. The way her use of language and sense of humor wind their way around her life story brings life and depth and movement to every detail. It's the same spirit she brings to her research of Caribbean and African-American religion and folklore, anthropologically teasing out the spirits within words and deeds. She remains a controversial and prolific figure, even almost 70 years after her death. Her latest book was published posthumously just last year in 2018. Barracoon, based on her 1927 interviews with Cujo Lewis, the last living survivor of the Middle Passage Atlantic slave trade, is a testament to the power of gathering and telling stories, keeping those stories alive. She said, I want to collect like a new broom. Brings a whole meaning to a witch's flight, right? She called herself pagan and rewrote the tale of Moses from a black rural American perspective. She threw around the N-word with a deliberate and near-joyful irony. She claimed and reclaimed and felt proud and entitled and was not humble. But perhaps her most defining characteristic is her curiosity. Hurston wrote, Research is formalized curiosity. It is poking and prying with a purpose. It is seeking that he who wishes may know the cosmic secrets of the world and that they dwell therein. I mean, those three sentences could easily have been the missing witch's motto, right? I was full of curiosity, like many other children. I was always asking and making myself a crow in a pigeon's nest. I got few answers from other people, but I kept right on asking because I couldn't do anything else with my feelings. But no matter whether my probings made me happier or sadder, I kept on probing to know. In her book, Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Virginia Lynn Moylan writes, Hurston's favorite place in town was the front porch of Joe Clark's general store, the hub of the town's social life, where the master storytellers spun their tales and the adult gossip often included sly references to the physical condition of women, irregular love affairs, or male potency. Children were banned from hanging around the porch too long, but Zora would risk a whipping to hide around the side and listen to the tales, the gossip, a singing liner's work song, or the soulful melodies of Bubber Mim's guitar. She was mesmerized by the men folks' lying sessions, otherwise known as folk tales, about creation, servitude, love, death, nature, and the why of things. Tales in which God, Devil, Brer Rabbit, Brer Fox, Sis Cat, Brer Bear, Brer Lion, Tiger, Buzzard, and all the wood folk walked and talked like natural men. Zora would take a whipping. And she really pushed that willingness to sacrifice for her curiosity as far as she could, devoting much of her life to the almighty research. She gathered tales, both formally in interviews and casually in the living room of friends, to be written into her novels and essays and stories. She said, I had things clawing inside of me that must be said. 
Alice Walker, Pulitzer Prize-winning literary giant in her own right, most famously as the author of The Color Purple, wrote extensively on Hurston. One of our favorite pieces comes from Dedication on Refusing to be Humbled by Second Place in a Contest You Did Not Design which serves as the introduction to a Hurston anthology Walker edited. The anthology's title comes from the response Hurston gave upon seeing the results of a portrait photo shoot. She said, I love myself when I am laughing, and then again when I am looking mean and impressive. Walker covers a lot in her brief dedication, better and more eloquently and thoughtfully than we could ever hope to do ourselves. We're super grateful to Alice Walker for writing it and very happy we found it. So here's a few big chunks. A friend of mine called one day to tell me that she and another woman had been discussing Zora Neale Hurston and had decided they wouldn't have liked her. They wouldn't have liked the way, when her play Color Struck won second prize in a literary contest at the beginning of her career, Hurston walked into a room full of her competitors, flung her scarf dramatically over her shoulder, and yelled, Color Struck! at the top of her voice. Apparently it isn't easy to like a person who is not humbled by second place. Zora Neale Hurston was outrageous, it appears, by nature. She was quite capable of saying, writing, or doing things different from what one might have wished. Because she recognized the contradictions and complexity of her own personality, Robert Hemingway, her biographer, writes that Hurston came to delight in the chaos she sometimes left behind. Yet for all her contrariness, her chaos, her ability to stir up dislike that is as strong today as it was 50 years ago, many of us love Zora Neale Hurston. We do not love her for her lack of modesty. That tends to amuse us. An assertive black person during Hurston's time was considered an anomaly. We do not love her for her unpredictable and occasionally weird politics. They tend to confuse us. We do not certainly applaud many of the mad things she is alleged to have said and sometimes actually did say. We do not even claim to dislike her. In reading through the 30-odd year span of her writing, most of us, I imagine, find her alternately winning and appalling but rarely dull, which is worth a lot. We love Zora Neale Hurston for her work, first, and then again, as she and all Eatonville would say, we love her for herself, for the humor and courage with which she encountered a life she infrequently designed, and for her absolute disinterest in becoming either white or bourgeois, and for her devoted appreciation of her own culture, which is an inspiration to us all. I think we are better off if we think of Zora Neale Hurston as an artist, period, rather than as the artist politician most black writers have been required to be. This frees us up to appreciate the complexity and richness of her work. We live in a society as blacks, women, and artists whose contests we do not design and with whose insistence on ranking us we are permanently at war. To know that second place in such a society has often required more work and innate genius than first, a longer, grimmer struggle over greater odds than first, and to be able to fling your scarf about dramatically while you demonstrate that you know is to trust your own self-evaluation in the face of the great white western commercial of white and male supremacy which is virtually everything we see outside and often inside our own homes. That Hurston held her own literally against the flood of whiteness and maleness that diluted so much other black art of the period in which she worked is a testimony to her genius and her faith. As black women and as artists, we are prepared, I think, to keep that faith. There are other choices, but they are despicable.
Zora Neale Hurston, who went forth into the world with one dress to her name and who was permitted, at other times in her life, only a single pair of shoes, rescued and recreated a world which she labored to hand us whole, never underestimating the value of her gift, if at times doubting the good sense of its recipients. She appreciated us, in any case, as we fashioned ourselves. That is something and of all the people in the world to be, she chose to be herself, and more and more herself. That, too, is something. So this book is dedicated to Zora Neale Hurston. And so, like Walker, we dedicate this episode of the Missing Witches podcast to Zora Neale Hurston, and to the curious and the confident. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Hurston was born in Alabama in 1891. Some markers have her born in 1901, but it's largely agreed that she had at some point lied about her age, perhaps to be able to return to high school. Her family moved to Eatonville, Florida when Hurston was only three, so she considered this place her home and set many of her stories there. In 1942's Dust Tracks on a Road, she describes an early childhood chasing the horizon and being chased by the moon. She took her time learning to walk, she says, but once she started, she didn't stop. The strangest thing about it was that once I found the use of my feet, they took to wandering. I always wanted to go. I would wander off in the woods all day alone, following some inside urge to go places. This alarmed my mother a great deal. She used to say that she believed a woman who was an enemy of hers had sprinkled travel dust around the doorstep the day I was born. That was the only explanation she could find. And this seems almost prophetic, that at one year old, little Zora's life would already be characterized by this mixture of magic powder and the need to know and to go. A lot of her later childhood reads like a fairy tale. Not the pretty princess kind, but the old ones where wicked stepmothers do terrible things to children and idyllic youth is cut short by a cold reality. Hurston's mother, Lucy, the woman who had instructed her to jump at the sun, died. Her father quickly, very quickly, remarried and little Zora was shipped off to boarding school. She stayed there until her father just stopped paying her tuition. She started working as a maid at 14, but by her own account, never kept a job for very long. That curiosity leading her life again and again, she said, no matter how I resolved, I'd get tangled up with their reading matter and lose my job. One of the most serious objections to me was that having nothing, I still did not know how to be humble. We can't help but think of our beloved witch, Ipsita Roy Chakraverti's appreciation of arrogant women, or even the Angela Davis quote, well-behaved women seldom make history. Missing witches maintain that witchcraft is activism, and activism is witchcraft, but we didn't create the synonymous relationship between powerful women, witchcraft, and dissidents. No, those labels were and are thrust upon us for us to reject, ignore, or embrace. But... It seems like there's a certain aspect of witchcraft or being a witch that almost won't allow us to be sheepish or apologize for not fitting in. 
Part of being a witch, I think, is allowing yourself to take up space, to exist with freedom and authenticity. And for Zora, there is a steadfast relationship between her curiosity and her confidence. She didn't just have questions, she felt she deserved answers, and empowered to ask her questions was brave enough to seek those answers at almost any cost. In another Disney-esque twist, she worked, for a time, with a traveling theater company, eventually ending up in Baltimore. There, she was a manicurist, tried waitressing, got appendicitis, and had to have surgery. When I was taken up to the amphitheater for the operation, I went up there placing a bet with God. I did not fear death. Nobody would miss me very much, and I had no treasures to leave behind me. So I would not go out of life looking backwards on that account. But I bet God that if I lived, I would try to find out the vague directions whispered in my ears and find the road it seemed that I must follow. How? When? Why? What? All those answers were hidden from me. Of course, she did live through the surgery and resigned to win that bet with God. How then did I get back to school? I just went... Zora was notoriously charming, witty, driven, resourceful, and smart. She worked her way through high school, prep school, she earned an associate's degree at Howard University and studied at Bernard under the legendary Franz Boas, a man who has since been dubbed the father of modern anthropology. With her unquenchable thirst for stories, anthropology, the study of human culture and society, made perfect sense. She was born for it. Boas sent Hurston to do field research in Harlem, New York, and it was there that she met and began collaborations with Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman. Hurston is perhaps most famously associated with this, the Harlem Renaissance. If you've never heard of the Harlem Renaissance, in short, it was a movement that reveled in its blackness. A black-fueled, black-themed explosion of art, music, poetry, a new wave of social Afrocentrism that swept across the New York of the 1920s. The Harlem Renaissance was an incarnation of black pride that spirit and influence is still felt through American culture. Hurston and Langston Hughes, a side note, please read his poetry and essays, and many others would gather at the home of writer Wallace Thurman. They published a magazine together, and these gatherings soon became the talk of the town. We know that Zora saw the glories of black culture and was not humble. So it's fitting that she became somewhat of a poster child for what Alain Leroy Locke, the first African-American Rhodes Scholar, hailed as, quote, the new Negro. This term, popularized during the Harlem Renaissance, implied outspoken advocacy of black history and black dignity and a refusal to submit quietly to Jim Crow. A refusal to hide black identity, blend in, or be self-effacing. This was a group who rebuked the values of the white bourgeoisie and were not concerned with fitting in. Zora said, and I hope all you witches will carry this in your hearts. Sometimes I feel discriminated against, but it does not make me angry. It merely astonishes me. How can anyone deny themselves the pleasure of my company? It's beyond me. In a way, this statement kind of epitomizes the movement. Soaked in black history, shining black excellence, and not humble. But as Valerie Boyd points out in her Hurston biography, Wrapped in Rainbows, 
Though Hurston is often thought of today as a Harlem Renaissance writer, she actually did not produce very much literature during the Renaissance, which began to crumble, most historians agree, when the stock market crashed in 1929. The truth is, she published no books and only a few short stories and plays during the Roaring Twenties. For the remainder of the Harlem Renaissance, Zora Neale Hurston was rarely even in Harlem. Mostly, she was on the road. So, although she wasn't publishing a lot, some of what we know about her thoughts and life was gathered from letters she wrote to her friends from the Harlem Renaissance. Langston Hughes, County Cullen. Arriving in New Orleans on one of her collecting missions, she wrote to Hughes, I have landed here in the kingdom of Marie Laveau, and I expect to wear her crown someday. To writer and poet County Cullen, she wrote, I have the nerve to walk my own way, however hard, in my search for reality, rather than climb upon the rattling wagon of wishful illusions. In Haiti, she wrote her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, while collecting stories for what would become the book, Tell My Horse. If you're a fan of this podcast, you know that we don't make much of a distinction between magic and science. Rituals are methods, and words cast spells. All is part of natural and cosmic law. But here's an example of that from Tell My Horse. They take dirt from a graveyard to maim and kill, and the principle behind this practice is more subtle than the surface shows. It is hardly probable that more than 1% of the people who dig into an old grave to get a handful of dirt to destroy an enemy or the enemy of a client know what they do. To most of them, it is a superstition connected in their minds with the idea of ghosts and the belief in their power to harm. But soil from deep in an old grave has prestige wherever the Negro exists in the Western world. In the United States, it is called goofer dust, and there is a great deal of laughter among educated people over it. The idea of some old witch doctor going to a cemetery at dead of night to dig arm-length deep in a grave for dirt with which to harm and kill does seem ridiculous. Now wait just a moment before you laugh too hard at this old hoodoo man or woman of magic, Sir Spencer Wells, The Disposal of the Dead. Shane found germs of scarlatina in the soil surrounding a grave after 30 years. Dr. Maringo Ferrario of Rio de Janeiro. If each corpse is the bearer of millions of organisms, specific of ill, imagine what a cemetery must be in which new foci are forming around each body. More than 20 years after the death of a body, Shane found the germs of yellow fever, scarlatina, typhoid, and other infectious diseases. Pasteur. What outlooks are open to the mind in regard to the possible influence of the soil with the etiology of disease and the probable danger of the earth of cemeteries? So it appears that instead of being a harmless superstition of the ignorant, the African men of magic found out the deadly qualities of graveyard dirt. In some way, they discovered that the earth surrounding a corpse that had sufficient time to thoroughly decay was impregnated with deadly power. For the Missing Witches take on the Roots of Hoodoo, check out our Mama Lola episode from Season 1, or take a peek at the show notes for that episode for links to our favorite books on the subject. But better yet, read Hurston's books, specifically Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. They are both packed with folktales and magic songs and recipes retold in ways that only Zora could conjure. 
She talks about the passage of time as when the moon had dragged a thousand tides. Stories made poetry in her thoughtful and lyrical telling. She married and divorced twice. Her one true love was that formalized curiosity. I want to collect like a new broom. So, in truest Zora Neale Hurston fashion, that's what she did. Traveling, collecting, writing, publishing. But she didn't just document the magic like some scholar outsider. She was initiated and opened herself up to all that that entails. In New Orleans, I delved into hoodoo, or sympathetic magic. I studied with the frizzly rooster and all of the other noted doctors. I learned the routines for making and breaking marriages, driving off and punishing enemies, influencing the minds of judges and juries in favor of clients, killing by remote control and other things. In order to work with these two-headed doctors, I had to go through an initiation with each. The routine varied with each doctor. In one case, it was not only elaborate, it was impressive. I lay naked for three days and nights on a couch, with my navel to a rattlesnake skin, which had been dressed and dedicated to the ceremony. I ate no food in all that time, only a pitcher of water was on a little table at the head of the couch so that my soul would not wander off in search of water and be attacked by evil influences and not return to me. On the second day, I began to dream strange, exalted dreams. On the third night, I had dreams that seemed real for weeks. In one, I strode across the heavens with lightning flashing from under my feet and grumbling thunder following in my wake. In this particular ceremony, my finger was cut and I became blood brother to the rattlesnake. We were to aid each other forever. I was to walk with the storm and hold my power and get my answers to life and things in storms. The symbol of lightning was painted on my back. This was to be mine forever. In another ceremony, I had to sit at the crossroads at midnight in complete darkness and meet the devil and make a compact. That was a long, long hour as I sat flat on the ground, there alone, and invited the king of hell. The most terrifying was going to a lonely glade in the swamp to get the black cat bone. The magic circle was made and all of the participants were inside. I was told that anything outside that circle was in deadly peril. The fire was built inside, the pot prepared, and the black cat was thrown in with the proper ceremony and boiled until his bones fell apart. Strange and terrible monsters seemed to thunder up to that ring while this was going on. It took months for me to doubt it afterwards. She didn't hoard what she collected either. Sharing what she had learned was as important as the learning itself. She made her way from Louisiana to the Bahamas and on her return to New York in 1932 introduced Bahamian songs and dances to a New York audience. By 1934, she was establishing a drama school, quote, based on pure Negro expression. Traveling, collecting, writing, publishing, traveling, collecting, writing, publishing. These four words characterized most of Zora's life throughout the 30s and 40s. California, Harlem, Honduras, Florida, Jamaica. Fellowships, patrons, and research grants enabling her ever-growing search for the answer to an impossible mystery. She wrote, Belief in magic is older than writing, so nobody knows how it started. But she kept looking and listening, driven by curiosity, and everywhere she found music and magic. 
Everywhere she found music and magic. Until 1948. There was a scandal. She was falsely accused of a terrible thing, and I say falsely because 100% of the evidence spoke to her innocence and her accuser admitted that he was lying. But despite her clear innocence, a mix of personal vendetta and salacious, profit-driven tabloid reporting ensured that the story had already spread. She felt suicidal, betrayed by her community, and eventually left Harlem for good. Every strong woman is a witch, and all are hunted. Hurston returned to Florida and spent the 1950s working as a writer, librarian, and substitute teacher. In 1959, she had a stroke. The story goes that in 1960, Hurston died when her heart failed in a county welfare home. Her body buried in an unmarked grave and personal effects set to be burned. The fire had been lit. But, as the fates would have it, a friend, Patrick Duval, was passing by the place where she had lived, and he stopped and put out the fire, rescuing her papers from being burned as if at the stake. Let's return to Alice Walker here for a minute, because she is the one who found and marked Hurston's grave in 1973. Walker and Hurston are so linked that we almost can't speak about one without bringing up the other. To put it our way... Hurston went looking for the witches she'd been missing, and Walker did the same. She discovered Hurston while doing research on voodoo in the American South for a short story. Thaddeus Davis recounts Walker's telling of this discovery in his essay, The Polarities of Space. Walker initially encountered Zora Neale Hurston not as a novelist of the Harlem Renaissance, but rather as a folklorist and researcher. She remembered that discovery resulting from her need to include accurate material on voodoo practices among rural southern blacks of the 30s. But she found no one she could trust. A number of white racist anthropologists and folklorists of the period had, not surprisingly, disappointed and insulted me. They thought blacks inferior, peculiar, and comic, and for me, this undermined, no, destroyed the relevance of their books. Fortunately, she discovered Zora Neale Hurston's Mules and Men, and with that collection documenting Hurston's recording of the culture and folklore of her all-black Florida town, Eatonville, she also discovered an anthropologist whose material was authentic, and that authenticity of her material was verified by her familiarity with its context. Walker's usage of context signals her understanding of how Hurston dealt with ideas and with what and how black people thought. More importantly, since Walker sought an authoritative rejoinder to the negative and inaccurate views promulgated by white anthropologists and folklorists, Hurston's documentation and contextualization of black Southern life had a powerful effect. Walker says, I was soothed by her reassurance that she was exposing not simply an adequate culture, but a superior one. That black people can be, on occasion, peculiar and comic was knowledge she enjoyed. That they could be racially and culturally inferior to whites never seems to have crossed her mind. Alice Walker is credited with breaking Hurston into a more mainstream knowledge when Ms. Magazine published her essay describing her search, aptly titled looking for Zora. If you're at all interested, you should really read this piece. It's available online, and we've linked to it in our show notes for this episode. And so Walker and Hurston became woven together, with Hurston serving as a posthumous mentor for Walker. 
In her essay, June Jordan and Alice Walker's Quest for a Redemptive Art and Politics, Cheryl Wall writes about this Hurston-Walker dynamic. If you're not familiar with the poet June Jordan, just know that she said this, To tell the truth is to become beautiful, to begin to love yourself, value yourself, and that's political in its most profound way. In her essay, Cheryl Wall writes, Hurston, the first black anthropologist to conduct fieldwork on voodoo, or as she preferred, hoodoo, provided the information that Walker needed to complete her story. More importantly, she became the model who affirmed Walker's choice of vocation. Hurston, who was fond of the black English word bodacious, that's bold plus audacious, offers Walker a literary legacy as well as a model for living a free life that is marked by unwavering dedication to one's work. Alice Walker once said, We are a people. A people do not throw their geniuses away. And if they are thrown away, it is our duty as artists and as witnesses for the future to collect them again and again for the sake of our children and, if necessary, bone by bone. Walker and Hurston and Patrick Duval and others like them are the unwitting forebears of the Missing Witches Project. We give them mad love and respect as we go digging, collecting bones of our own. Ancestors' bones. Witches' bones. Building skeletons bone by bone. One more shout out to Alice Walker. She wrote a glowing review of one of Missing Witch's favorite books, Monica Show's The Great Cosmic Mother. Walker called it one of the most important books she'd ever read. So if you're listening, thanks again for that, Alice Walker. We at Missing Witches encourage you all to be bold, audacious, bodacious, curious, confident, and not humble. Gather bones and seek truth and speak the buried truths that you discover in the boneyard. Be brave. Have the nerve to walk your own way. Do your magic knowing that someday, somewhere, a curious witch will find it and feel it. We'll leave you to make your own dust tracks on a road with one last passage from Zora's autobiography. The springing of the yellow line of morning out of the misty deep of dawn is glory enough for me. I know that nothing is destructible. Things merely change forms. When the consciousness we know as life ceases, I know that I shall still be part and parcel of the world. I was a part before the sun rolled into shape and burst forth in the glory of change. I was when the earth was hurled out from its fiery rim. I shall return with the earth to Father Son and still exist in substance when the sun has lost its fire and disintegrated in infinity to perhaps become a part of the whirling rubble in space. Why fear? The stuff of my being is matter, ever-changing, ever-moving, but never lost. So what need of denominations and creeds to deny myself the comfort of all my fellow men? The wide belt of the universe has no need for finger rings. I am one with the infinite and need no other assurance. You must be a witch. Thanks for listening to the Missing Witches Podcast. Be sure to come back Wednesday where we meet another bold and audacious witch, Athena Holmes, on Witches Found.
In the meantime, hit us up at missingwitches at gmail.com or on social media at missingwitches and blessed be.